This is Hot and Dry, a podcast about climate change in the Southwest. And about how it's changing the places we live and how it's changing our lives. I'm Paige Buono. And I'm Colin Haffey. And today we're joined by Julia Bernal, who's the executive director of the Pueblo Action Alliance, a group based out of New Mexico. And Paige is going to tell us a little bit about the Pueblo Action Alliance in a minute. But we sat down with Julia and had a really great conversation about her work, um, about a recent trip to D.C. that she was just back from and really talking about the intersections of you know, feminism, environmental justice, Native American rights and activism, how all of those things intersect with climate and water and, you know, maintaining a sense of place and, and a future for people living in the Rio Grande Valley and, and across the West. Both of us working in New Mexico, the Pueblo Action Alliance is definitely something that um, I've heard about, but it was great to learn so much more from Julia. And um, for those who aren't familiar, the Pueblo Action Alliance is um, what Julia refers to as a small but mighty uh, community-driven organization. Um, They work to promote cultural sustainability and community defense um, by addressing environmental and social impacts to indigenous communities. Um, Julia is one of, I think, close to seven or eight folks working really closely um, through that alliance. As you'll learn from Julia in the interview, the Action Alliance works on all kinds of things, but one of the... um, sort of issues or campaigns that they're working on now that I found really interesting was uh, what Julia referred to as the water back movement, sort of the sister movement to the land back movement. And, you know, her specific emphasis on the fact that especially in the West and Southwest, land back doesn't work without water back. Paige, that's the first time I've actually heard that phrase water back. Maybe tell us a little bit about water back and, um, and land back, actually, it'd be good to know about both of those. Yeah, I mean, Julia speaks about it much more articulately than I will. But, you know, my understanding of the land back movement, and I think that there are um, a lot of different sort of arms and legs to the movement is, you know, overall, the goal is to get to put indigenous land back in the hands and management and care of indigenous stewardship. And I think um, similarly, the Waterback Movement is about, you know, clarifying um, water rights for indigenous communities. And I think um, trying to sort of reintroduce what Julia refers to as an indigenous feminist um, water and land management practice um, to to the stewardship and care of those resources. I'll just say, you know, we talk a little bit about the Waterback Movement in this episode, but um, Julia mentions the website and um, the Waterback Movement listed under one of the campaigns. And there's a video there um, where Julia and some of her colleagues of the Pueblo Action Alliance um, talk in really great detail about that movement and sort of their vision for it. Um, So we'll put the link to that in the show notes. Yeah. And like I said, like, like I said, uh, this is the first time that I'd ever heard anything like that. So, you know, about the water back movement. So it was interesting just to learn about it and to hear from Julia. And we, you know, that's kind of what we hope to do on this show a little bit is just to highlight some of those other, you know, the people who are doing really interesting and, and cool stuff in New Mexico. And so without further ado, let's just jump into Julia and you don't have to listen to us go back and forth very long. Cause like Paige said, she's super compelling. Um, as we've sort of gone through this season, which we're calling climate influencers, we've asked um, each of our guests so far who else, you know, who their inspiration is and who else they see as climate influencers. And your name just came up a number of times. So we're really excited to have you here. <laughs> Thank you. That's that's nice. Thank you. It's good to be here. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, we just, we have a number of questions and I guess maybe just to start a little bit with, you know, how you introduce yourself and a little bit about you. Sure. Yeah. So, um, my name is Julia Bernal. I am from Sandia Pueblo. I live here. I've grown up here. Um, but I'm also Yuchi, um, from the Oklahoma area on my mother's side. So, um, I'm a Pueblo Southern Plains. <laughs> I guess that's an interesting combination, but um, yeah, I, I grew up here in the Southwest. Um, and so I've just had an affinity to a lot of the environmental and water related issues in our region. Um, particularly because my family, um, have been farmers, agricultural, traditional agricultural users, um, for generations, um, and so watching, you know, my dad and uncles and brothers, um, you know, manage large <laughs> equipment and irrigate and, you know, also being a farmhand myself, I think has also been a integral part of my upbringing and then just being from Sandia, which is one of the middle Rio Grande Pueblos, I grew up by the river and I think that just has been pretty foundational to who I am today. Can you tell us a little bit about the Pueblo Action Alliance? That's how we came to know you was through that group and we'd love to learn a little bit more. Great. Yeah, um, I've been part of Pueblo Action Alliance for the past five years now. We have focused a lot of our advocacy and campaign efforts to protecting the greater Chaco region, um, which is a, a region within the northwestern corner of our state, which has been heavily and violently impacted by the presence of oil and gas. Um, it also has one of our uh, sacred sites, Chaco Canyon, which is a very um, culturally sensitive and significant, you know, piece of our Pueblo history, um, but also a site that we use, you know, spiritually and culturally today. So now we're just um, continuing to grow as an organization, bring on more Pueblo people to become more empowered and involved with issues that are very important to us, um, whether that's, you know, air, soil, land, water, um, and then just protecting our cultural integrity. Just a huge shout out to our whole team. They're all doing um, incredible work. You mentioned that you're back from DC recently. Is that related to your work or was that just a, a fun trip? Yeah, yeah. Actually, um, we had been invited to be a part of this totem pole journey through the Native Organizers Alliance, Illuminatives, us, um, the Natural uh, History Museum, and Cicely. Um, and they sponsored and basically, you know, were witness to and helped um, bring a totem pole that was carved by a family from the Lummi Nation in Washington State. Um, their organization was called House of Tears and they carved these amazing totem poles. Um, and 
take them on journeys to different parts of the world um, as an as an act of ceremonial action, indigenous resistance. Um, this one in particular was to be delivered to Secretary Holland and the Department of the Interior. And um, we were also able to have a meeting with Secretary Holland. Um, so I know that she's well aware of the many issues in Indian country, um, but it was an opportunity for us to continue sharing like what is happening on the ground. Wow, that sounds really interesting. Have you been a part of anything like that before? I hadn't ever been on something like this. Um, so it was definitely very uh, special and unique and um, a good experience just to be a part of. Um, and it was also just good to see um, our Auntie Deb, you know, she's from the Laguna Pueblo and a lot of our staff are actually family. And so it was just nice to see her and just ask her how she is doing. And um, it was also the first trip that we had gone on um, since the pandemic. So that was also kind of exciting in itself. Yeah. How is she doing in her new role as Secretary of Interior? I mean, she's very like fierce and positive and I know that she's doing what she can. Um, I know that she definitely gets a lot of criticism and at times scrutiny for, um, for whatever actions or inactions she takes. But um, we all know that this is a system that we are, you know, inevitably fighting against and not just a person. So, um, yeah, it was just good to check in on a, on a relative um, in that sense, being that Pueblo people are very communal and close-knit. Um, it was just good to say, hi, I hope you're doing okay. <laughs> yeah, six months in and not a ton of time, but it's been great to see what she's been able to do and it pretty impressive. Absolutely. And I mean, like, you know, there's a lot of undoing that has to happen since the Trump administration, even prior to that. So um, that's just what comes, I think, with this work is just knowing that the system that was created um, wasn't created for Indigenous people. And so we're doing several things. We're asserting our inherent sovereign rights. Um while we're also physically stopping um, oil and gas inf infrastructure, um, trying to respect treaties, um, you, you know, there's there's several things going on. It's it's very intersectional and has many different layers. And so, I I understand that it can be frustrating when you feel like um, leadership isn't listening to what your demands are. Yeah, I'm curious. One of the things that um, that I think you mentioned as an interest of yours is, you know, decolonizing water. And I'm curious if you can talk more about sort of what that looks like, you know, in, at whatever, you know, geographic um, scope you're, you're thinking about it. But I guess I'm especially curious in New Mexico. Yeah. Um, so my background is initially in water. Um, and and so I was um felt very privileged to bring, you know, that perspective into our organization because we we really are trying to look at those long-term solutions. Um, here with, um, with water issues, 
we have a lot of undoing to do. Um, we're essentially governed by 19th century policy with 20th century infrastructure in the 21st century. So we're dealing with a multi-generational issue here. Um, but in the Southwest, we, we all understand that we're in semi-arid, arid environments. And so water security and scarcity is, is a huge issue, especially when we're facing um, climate change and so when we're thinking about climate adaptation, we have to think about how water is governed and how water um, has been governed in the past. I mean, if you go back to like the 18th century when the US government was really pushing for people to move from the East Coast and start going westward, um, you know, they were saying, <laughs> they were using propaganda like, water follows the plow and that's not scientific that is not on any science whatsoever you know and and now we're seeing you know climate is changing we're seeing less snowpack not necessarily less precipitation but less snowpack and and so we have to think about how we're going to adapt to changing climate and fortunately, indigenous people who have lived in this region have been also adapting to changing climate. I think it's important that stewardship, land and water management, a lot of this jurisdictional authority must go back into the hands of indigenous people. And so we offered a um, sibling campaign to the land back movement, water back um, we recognize that we can't have land back without water back um, in the Southwest particularly. And, and so it's essentially offering a space for people to think very deeply about what decolonizing your water rights look like. Um, is it an allocation system? Is it, a, is it an adjudication system? Um, but ultimately we do believe that um, specifically here in this region, um, a Pueblo feminist perspective on water management is needed and it's going to be beneficial for everybody. Um, we don't necessarily have those solutions, but we have to, you know, have spaces that start these conversations and, um, again, spaces to think more deeply about the paradigm shift that is needed in order for us to have water for not just now, but many futures to come and, you know, how to also live in reciprocity with, with the natural world. I was just going to ask if you could talk a little bit more about what that like feminist Pueblo approach to, to water and water management might include or involve and, and kind of where the spaces are that this, conversation around imagining the solutions is or should be happening. Sorry, that's kind of two questions bundled up. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's okay. Um, well, in, in my experience as a Pueblo, um, a Pueblo femme in, you know, from Sandia, we view our river as, as one of our mothers. Um, and they're there has been a shift in how we view water. So there's an indigenous view of viewing our river as a mother to you, viewing our river as um, 
a resource, um, something that has to be um, used to its most beneficial use. Um, and that's a completely two different, completely um, different worldviews. And, you know, women also have an innate um, connection to water being that, um, you know, when women carry children, there's, they carry water as well. And, you know, th those are a lot of traditional teachings that, you know, we have through, um, through, you know, our, our, well, from my perspective, this is just a public perspective. It's not, it's not all, <laughs> but um, there's, there's a deeper connection that women have to water. And, and so we have um, traditionally, you know, been like carriers of water. Therefore, um, we have a, we can offer different types of strategies that nurtures that resurgence of identity and personhood to our river. So if we, you know, if we were mis misusing um, or mistreating our mother, I think that would innately seem wrong. <laughs> but if we're mismanaging and mistreating a resource, maybe that wouldn't um, automatically, you know, register as something being wrong. Um, and so that's something that we think more deeply about as well. Um, I know that there are other indigenous um, communities throughout the world that have been fighting to give that personhood and those human rights back to their waterways. Um, I believe that um, the Maori in New Zealand and Aotearoa um, also were able to complete that, you know, resurgence of personhood back to their waterway um, as a mother. And so, you know, these are completely different worldviews, but um, more so, um, Pueblo people have been living in this desert, arid environment since time immemorial, and we um, continue to practice traditional ways that um, essentially speak to, to water, speak to the water and the sky. We dance and pray for rain, and um, that in itself is, I would argue, a water management strategy. Um, and so if there is an opportunity and there should be opportunities for those traditional and indigenous water management strategies to have its place in the dominant paradigm, um, we, we would be able to see more um, equitable water management plans. I'm not exactly sure how to ask this question. So if, if it's no good, please skip it. Is there a way in your view that the dominant paradigm can make room for the ideas that you're talking about? Or is this a situation where, like you were talking about earlier, where we need to deconstruct and build something new? Or is there some way to balance those two things? And again, if it doesn't make any sense, we can we can totally punt this question. Um, what I, I'll, uh, I'll attempt, I'll give it a, I'll give it a go. Um, so, like I mentioned earlier um, about the, the federal government system being a system that wasn't made for us, um, I feel it's, it's very much the same in that 
the system wasn't based on good and moral values. Um, indigenous people have very similar um, values in the sense that we know that our purpose is to steward and take care of the land and have respect for not just um, each other, but ourselves, have respect for the earth, have respect for our waters. Um, and these, these traditional core values really are the foundation that has um, helped us grow our own governance systems, our own um, societal systems, clan systems, whatever, whatever you're talking about. Um, we've set these, these intentions, these good intentions. Um, and if you look at the history of the US government, the intentions were to remove indigenous people, um, exploit labor from our African relatives to um, gain capital, to gain property. And to me, that isn't a system that it's based on good values. And so how can we continue to try and reform a system that isn't innately good or in good um, moral standing with each other? And so to me, I don't think that there is any sort of opportunity to reform a system that wasn't founded on good morals or values thanks for that answer to a clunky question what are you working on in the next year or 18 months that you're excited about and you'd like people to know um well personally i'm trying to finish my master's <laughs> in uh in water resources and community and regional planning. And so I really do, um, I'm hoping I can get done within the next year, but, um, you know, I'm just looking forward to connecting with other indigenous peoples, um, and talking about water and bringing this conversation to, um, to larger platforms because, it's it's a it's a perspective that isn't just mine but it should be for everyone like we always say like this isn't just going to benefit native peoples it's it's essentially good for everyone it's it's challenging for someone like me to be in water spaces which have been predominantly um white men and so the opportunity that um, indigenous women and femmes and thems can have um, in water spaces is really going to be crucial for how we adapt to climate. I guess, Julia, I would be curious who your, um, you know, sort of who inspires you. And and we've been asking, you know, specifically sort of at the climate nexus, but I'll let you take that. However, um, yeah, who are the people that that inform your thinking and direction? Um, that's a, that's a hard question. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm constantly, um, in just, just awe of the, 
of Pueblo women um, that are dedicating their lives to um, protecting our, our landscape and our culture and, you know, our, our traditional ways of life. I, I know that um, the, the knowledge keepers and, um, you know, language keepers that we have in our communities don't always get the recognition that they deserve, but they really are the folks that um, carry our traditions on their backs without asking anything in return. And so, um, you know, I have many people that I look up to um, in that are doing similar work, but um, my like gratitude and heart goes out to all of our um, community members um, that continue our traditional ways and, you know, um, have that knowledge base for us to continue learning as well. Um, and so I think more broadly, I just have to, you know, look up to a lot of the women from my community um, that show up for each other, um, that, you know, are the backbone of our, of our traditional ways. Uh, it, like I said, they don't get the recognition they deserve. Yeah, well, I think, you know, um, Julia, just thank you so much for um, taking the time and and being willing to bring it forward and, um, and all the work that you have done and are doing and are centering. Um, I think we really appreciate, I know, we really appreciate it and appreciate you taking the time to share it. And, and we look forward to sharing it in whatever way we can as well, being part. Um, yeah, I think it's just important that, um, you know, non-Indigenous folks continue to center that work that Indigenous people have been doing since even before me, you know, this is a continuation of work. <laughs> um, and and just remembering that um, it's not for us, it's not just for us, it's really for everybody. And that's also public core values. All of the prayers and um, ceremonies that we do isn't just for us it's for the whole world and um, just continue working to do that um, that decolonial work um, and if you can support our organization um, in any way possible just look through our website and there's other opportunities um, to you know help show up for us as well um, but I think um, it's just important to center these conversations. One of the overlapping things that I thought was really interesting was how Julia talked about treating the river as a source of life and as a mother and making sure that we have water in the river. And that felt really similar to other ideas that we've heard about, especially from like Gay Vasquez talking about the Living River Ordinance and just thinking about how those two things overlap. And I'm not sure, you know, if you get these two in a room, if you have 100% overlap or 50% overlap, but really when you boil it down to its simplest, it's water for the river. And I think at the end of the day, that's something that we can, you know, we can all get behind. Yeah, I think so too. And I think we even heard sort of similar um, concerns from Laura Paskus. And, you know, I think, 
interesting to note, these are communities and people from communities where the Rio Grande runs dry. It, you know, it doesn't feel like a river for parts of the year. And we're staring down a future where that's increasingly going to be the case. And so I think, you know, it's not surprising that the sound, the um, alarm bells are being raised from those communities. And I also think it's very much the case that this is not a new call, um, you know, from the Pueblo Action Alliance and, and from those Pueblo communities who have been fighting for the rights of the river for a long time. We're going to continue to hear things like this. The IPCC report came out just recently, so we're going to continue to hear about ideas that may feel and sound radical and ideas that feel really out there, but more and more, they're going to start to feel um, normalized as our space to take action starts to be squeezed by the climate warming that we're already seeing. And the scientists that wrote the IPCC report are recognizing that and referencing that in their and they're seeing that in the models that things are happening faster and sooner than predicted and, and to a higher degree. So what we want to do is, is, you know, make sure that our actions and our investments in our implementations match that challenge and match that need. And that means kind of going further and beyond what, what we think is sometimes, you know, going beyond what is comfortable. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, and we talked about this a little bit during our um, brief update on water and fire in the West, our last episode, but I think in that call for something new, um, you know, that sort of the status quo is not only not working, but if we continue to dig our heels in with it, um, we're dooming ourselves to a much more challenging future, especially on the waterfront. And I think whether it's fire and the, the sort of, um, promotion, increased understanding, the support for, you know, cultural burn practices and, and the reintegration of fire into communities where it's been for a long time. I think the ideas, um, that Julia brings around, not just, you know, um, water rights for tribes, but a whole different relationship with water, um, both for tribes and pueblos, but for water users throughout the West that those kinds of, you know, paradigm shifts in not just the management, but our whole relationship and thinking around the resources are going to be really critical. Well, thanks again. And thanks so much to Julia and the Pueblo Action Alliance. Really good stuff coming out of there. So follow those guys. Always interesting. And and thanks, Paige. Um, It's great to be on the Zoom with you. And we're on the Twitter. Everyone can find us there at Hot Dry Pod. Um, if there's someone you want us to talk to, uh, send us a, a DM or an email at at our Gmail. Our email account is a uh, Hot Dry Podcast at Gmail um, So, anyways, give us a shout. We'll be back at it soon. What else do you want to talk about? Anything? We're good. You want to hear more jokes?